Tonight on the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation Weekly Update, Steve Kirsch talks with Pfizer whistleblower Brooke Jackson, civil rights attorneys Robert Barnes and Warner Mendenhall, and a special report from president and co-founder of Feds for Medical Freedom, Marcus Thornton. And now, here's your host, Louisa Clary. Hi, this is Louisa Clary. Welcome to the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation Weekly Update. Tonight, we'll be talking with Pfizer whistleblower, Brooke Jackson, who bravely went public after witnessing several violations as a regional director at one of Pfizer's COVID vaccine clinical trial sites. Brooke will be joined by her legal counsel, renowned civil rights attorneys, Robert Barnes and Warner Mendenhall, here to discuss the growing legal problems that facing big pharma. And first up, We'll be checking in with Marcus Thornton, president of Feds for Medical Freedom, to hear about their big court victory against the vaccine mandate for federal employees. And we have the president and co-founder of Feds for Medical Freedom, Marcus Thornton, here to tell us about this important court decision. Marcus, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me today. Yes, absolutely. And I know you've been with us before and uh, been a speaker at Defeat the Mandates. And we're just honored that you could spend a little bit of time with us tonight and tell us about this big win this week. Yeah. First, if I could, I'd like to give just a little bit of brief background on our organization. We're a grassroots nonprofit organization, a coalition of over 8,000 federal employees and contractors who don't believe that our government can or should compel us to get vaccinated or to disclose our vaccination status. We believe that doing so, to do so, is not only immoral, but unconstitutional. And we feel strongly about this, and we're motivated by our personal religious beliefs, our beliefs in the Constitution, our opposition to government-backed oppression, and a conviction about our bodily right, our right to bodily autonomy and to medical freedom. This was great news for our organization. It's something that we've been um, working towards for for a while, and, you know, all the credit goes to our, our awesome attorneys who, who have been working on this case. I'm not an attorney. I can't speak to the legal aspect of, of things, but what I will say is that, you know, this gives us the opportunity to have our day in court. The court said that the, the, our case would be heard by the full fifth circuit on bank, which is the full panel of, I believe, 17 federal judges the week of September 12th. So later this year. And we're looking forward to it. We're looking forward to our attorneys having the opportunity to present the facts, and I'm confident that right will prevail. Yeah, great. So tell me, what does it mean between now and then for you all? Well, it means that for now, the injunction that was issued by the federal judge in Galveston remains in place, which means that federal employees are are protected from the vaccine mandate uh, until the Fifth Circuit chooses to, to make a decision on this. Okay, awesome. And the date is September. When will they be going back? Yeah, it'll it'll be the week of September 12th. We don't have an exact date yet, but sometime mid-September. Okay, awesome. Well, we will be rooting for you. We're so excited that this is the case. It gives you some more months and just thrilled about the decision. So I know you are too. Thank you so much for being here. As with are us. we. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks, Marcus. We'll see yeah, you if, if, yeah, if anybody wants to learn more about our organization okay. or you know they want to see the case filing itself, they can go to our website. And that's www.feds4, and that's the number four, medfreedom.org. Awesome. And I think- Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Um, Our next uh, piece of news, um, we have, as we learned last week, Fauci took Paxlovid for COVID and seemed to be doing great on day three, but we heard a couple days ago, as we see in the screen, he's experienced a rebound in COVID symptoms after taking Paxlovid. He's currently on his second dose of treatment, 
if you remember the CDC guidelines um, are to take Paxlovid, then when you text positive again and rebound, you're supposed to just isolate for five more days and not take a second round, but Mr. Science has done differently. Um, Dr. Pierre Corey chimed in on Twitter saying, you took the wrong med and you know it. Um, we all know it would just be easier if he took a medicine that worked, um, but that wouldn't help the pharma narrative for sure. A uh, good thing he has been triple vaxxed and boosted, or as they say, it could have been worse. Uh, the White House has also paid $10.6 billion for Pfizer's Paxlovid flop as they're no longer recommending it, except for high-risk patients, and even then, many are not qualified uh, due to drug act, um, interactions. Um, and uh, due to drug interactions, uh, it's just typically not recommended. As you see this other, other tweet about the, uh, the Paxlovid uh, and the billion dollars that the White House has spent on that. Let's see. Um, in other news, White House has just spent billions on the vaccines for the fall, including kids' vaccines and boosters. Not only did uh, Biden paid billions, but Jordan Chattel released that the old Pfizer, um, uh, we were paying 19 point, 1950 a dose before, and now we're paying $30 a dose. Pfizer raised the price by over 50%. Um, the expected revenue is $100 billion this year. And as Jordan says, um, as you see the tweet on the screen, it's criminal. I'm not sure why we just blatantly... Uh, gave over another 50% on that pricing, but that just closed yesterday. Um, next story, we have um, data this week came out. There's been a huge drop in birth rates since the role of the vaccine. As we see on the screen, Chicky uh, Leaks, by the way, is a doctor behind the scenes that has been deleted from Twitter and now has a fan account um, that uh, they write from. Uh, this is Germany's um, statistics. Um, in the thread below are stats from the UK, Taiwan, Switzerland, and one US state, North Dakota, don't know why we have their information, but we do, um, for that entire thread on Twitter and one easy link to read and share with people who either have Twitter or don't have Twitter. Um, David's gonna put that in the chat and it has all of the stats and charts for, for those um, countries. Uh, this week, Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Robert Malone spoke before the Texas Senate Committee on Health and Human Services. They both gave a powerful testimony about the failed COVID policies and especially the vaccines. We're going to hear some of Dr. Malone's testimony at the end of the show, but let's listen now to this clip of Dr. McCullough. We know the vaccines installed the genetic material for the Wuhan spike protein that was manipulated in a biosecurity lab in Wuhan, China. There are now a thousand papers published on the spike protein and the vaccines, a thousand that deal with vaccine injuries, and they're well characterized. And the FDA agrees the vaccines cause blood clots, the vaccines cause heart damage, the vaccines cause neurologic damage, they also cause well characterized immunologic and hematologic system damage. This is in the peer reviewed literature. This is not equivocal, this is not a subject of controversy or de debate, it's in our literature. There are now brand new diseases named after COVID-19 vaccine injuries. As of June 17, 2022, our CDC VAERS system has and certified 13,388 Americans who have died with the vaccine. The government seems to be completely ignoring the data on vaccine failure and severe adverse effects. And this week entered into yet another contract with Pfizer to purchase another 3.2 billion worth of its product for millions more doses and boosters. 
And as you saw before, um, we paid additionally this week for those. Um, as we continue to do our best to end the COVID-19 vaccines and mandates, uh, we at the VSRF need your help and financial support. Um, and we'd like to show a quick clip before I introduce him. Um, we would like to show a quick clip of an interview that he did this week. By approving this vaccine, they just uh, implicitly approved the future framework. So there was no special vote on the future framework. Explain to people why that's so important, why this future framework was supposed to be the linchpin of this. Why that's so important that that kind of got approved by acclamation today or implied? Yeah. So the future framework says that uh, instead of having to go through the whole process that they go through the clinical trials and the safety studies and so forth, for every time they reformulate a drug, the future framework says, hey, we can reformulate the drug and we'll tell the FDA what the reformulation is. And if they approve, then we can just get the an expedited approval on this drug without having to go through the standard safety studies and so forth. So instead of starting from scratch each time, you can basically short circuit the whole process. So the future framework is all about uh, expediting approval of a variation of an existing drug. It's saying, hey, if we tweak the formula by adding support for going after another variant, then we're not going to require the same level of scrutiny and testing and safety studies and so forth as if it were a new drug. And that was Steve, of course, on Steve Bannon in the war room, um, speaking about the future framework, which was passed this week, um, which basically, as Steve described, um, allow all future uh, doses of the vaccine not to endure the clinical trials. And unfortunately, it was passed with a 19 to 2 vote this week. Um, and there you go. Uh, this was a, a slide that Children's Health Defense did. All future COVID-19 shots would be deemed automatically safe and effective without the further clinical trials because they are considered biologically similar to the existing COVID-19 shots. And just to further introduce Steve, he's our, of course our founder, the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation. At the beginning of COVID funded the first studies on the repurposed drug fluvoxamine for COVID. The successful results were featured on 60 Minutes in April of 2021. Fluvoxamine was added to the FLCCC's MAF Plus protocol for treating COVID. And since then, Steve's mission with the VSRF has been to end the COVID-19 vaccines for good and continue to spread awareness on their lack of both safety and efficacy. Thanks, Steve, for joining us tonight. Good to see you. Good to be here, Louisa. Great. And let's go ahead and introduce our first <laughs> guest. Um, first guest is Pfizer whistleblower Brooke Jackson. Brooke has a near 20-year career spent in the clinical research industry working at individual clinical trial sites, site management organizations, or SMOs, and contract research organizations, or CROs. Her experience includes research in all phases of development for medical devices, pharmaceuticals, and biologics, with key experience in gastroenterology, hepatology, immunology, and infectious diseases. Brooke's range of expertise has developed from her roles in clinical trial coordination and management, clinical trial monitoring, clinical trial auditing, and director-level responsibility for quality control and assurance, regulatory compliance, and data management. It's with a strong background that Brooke was hired by Pfizer's clinical trial contractor, Ventavia, to manage one of Pfizer's COVID-19 clinical trials. Let's watch this video. I was working on Pfizer's phase three pivotal trial on their COVID-19 vaccine. I stayed late in clinic one evening. I was the only one in the clinic. 
I saw a biohazard bag. The plastic biohazard bag contained used needles and I realized how unorganized and sloppy Ventavia was, was handling everything. In that same room, the vaccine was just left out. They had written the subject information on these containers. It unblinded me to the, the randomization of these patients. It was also discovered that Ventavia was unblinding participants. Per Pfizer's protocol, we should have immediately stopped enrolling, but they never, they never told Pfizer. So that coupled with everything else, I made the recommendation for Ventavia to stop enrolling clinical trial participants in the study. I can tell you everything that we talked about, the unblinding, the safety of the clinical trial participants, not monitoring them for adverse reactions. They were late to report adverse events. Again, the untrained staff, the oversight by the principal investigators, specifically at the Fort Worth location, the targeting of the employees for coming forward. I thought that the FDA was gonna swoop in and, and, and take care of everything. Right. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And I'm going to go ahead part, I, 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 you know, hindsight's always 2020, but looking, looking at that video and, and hearing myself say that, it's shocking yeah. <laughs> that, that I trusted so much. I think we all did. I know I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm going to go ahead and bring on both of the attorneys and introduce them. And then Steve can see here. Brooke's here today with her two lead attorneys representing her in her lawsuit against Pfizer. Both Robert Barnes and Warner Mendenhall are joining us. Robert Barnes is a famed civil rights attorney whose unique abilities to empathize with and advocate for others have led to a successful career as a litigator for the underdog. Barnes has said that personal tragedy was a core part of his young empathetic training. Quote, I knew what it meant to have difficult odds from a young age, he said. Quote, my father passed away when I was 12. So we were living off of social security payments for widows and orphans. I went to work in the summers by the time I was 12 and started working full-time when I was 15, end quote. Barnes eventually won a scholarship to attend Yale University where he made quite a name for himself as a defender of the underdog and someone unafraid to challenge insiders in powerful positions. When Yale announced intentions to exclude students and the admissions process based solely on their lack of income, Barnes published a scathing and widely read op-ed challenging Yale's position and then left the school. Yale subsequently reversed its policies and has kept a quote, need blind admissions policy to this day. Barnes later earned a fellowship to attend the University of Wisconsin Law School where he graduated with honors and myriad awards for academic excellence. Today, Barnes continues to stand up to establishment systems, to bullies, to big banks, to the IRS, and to those who would take away our guaranteed freedoms of free speech and civil rights. He continues to win for the underdogs and for those who face seemingly impossible odds. Robert, we're excited to see you. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Yes. And next we have attorney Warner Mendenhall, who we had the pleasure of having on our show last week to discuss some of his other anti-mandate lawsuits. Warner found his way as a 
to a law career after seeing the extent of corruption and abuse of power as a leader in city government in his hometown of Akron, Ohio in the 1990s. After winning his first legal cases exposing fraud and corruption, Warner knew that he had found his calling. Since then, he's been building a mission-oriented practice to hold local and state governments, as well as private corporations, accountable. Warner's activism is anchored by his passion for helping empower ordinary people to stand up to government abuses, corporate mm -hmm. fraud, and bank malfeasance. Warner, great to see you again. Yeah, thank you for having me on again, Steve <clears throat> and Louisa. Thank you. And Steve, I know you have many questions to ask. All right. Well, you know, it's hard to know where to start, but but let's let's start with Brooke. And Brooke, when you notified Ventavia of all of these issues, mm -hmm. you would expect a an honest contractor to say, oh, thank you. We didn't know. We're going to halt everything. We're going to fix everything. We want to do it right. What was uh, Ventavia's reaction when you told him about this? Well, I start, they started enrolling in, in this clinical trial in July of 2020. I didn't start until September in 2020. So they were aware of some of the problems that, that I, I've talked about, you know, even before I got there. When I, when I started to come to them, and that was immediately from day one, they were um, very supportive of me coming in. They were excited to have my experience. And that, that quickly changed because I, I feel like I was bringing so much to their attention and they were already aware of, of again, some, some of the issues. But, you know, it was just, it was chaotic. They were overwhelmed and... Eventually, I, I was told to just start putting things on a list. <clears throat> they were aware. They were working to hire more staff. We were moving locations, so we had a, a, a bigger clinic to work in, and to just put, put them on a list. Put them on a list. Okay. So when did you go from putting it on a list to then sending an email to the FDA about what was going on? Like, what was the time frame over which that happened, where you finally said, hey, I'm, I'm fed up, I'm gonna tell my story to the FDA. And what email address at the FDA did you email? Because we probably don't want to use that email address again, since that got you fired. Was it Pfizer at FDA.gov? I think, um, kidding. It was, it was 18 days, I was at Ventavia, and that included weekends. When I recognized and realized that they were unblinding the clinical trial participants, had no regard for the serious adverse events that had been reported, they were not following up on them. It was really the safety of the patients that made me, uh, on that 18th day, call the FDA directly. I did that on the 25th of September, about nine o'clock in the morning. And no, it was, it, that was a phone call. It was a phone call. I was but, told but you, to, you, you don't call, just call up the FDA. Like, who do you, yeah, who you, do. you ask to speak you to? Can. You can, no, I I know. you can. You can, but who do you, who do you ask to speak to? Well, it was, a, it was a department that regulates biologics. So I called their 800 number and she directed me to a web-based form that I completed and submitted. I did that about, again, nine o'clock in the morning and was fired by Ventavia at th three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, the so only way that could later. possibly happen is if the FDA has an inside track and was and tipped off Pfizer to tip off Ventavia, right? In my opinion, I think that, you know, there, there's no other explanation. I 
and alerted the FDA to what was happening. And I, in my, again, in my opinion, I think the FDA alerted Pfizer and Pfizer in turn alerted my company and my company fired me under the, the pretext that I was not a good fit. Now, Robert, that's not supposed to happen, right? These, these organizations are supposed to be independent and checking on each other rather than in cahoots, right? No doubt about that. I mean, the FDA's job in this process was to meaningfully regulate, but they mostly delegate. They delegate these tasks effectively to the big pharma companies, and that shifted the burden obligation on Pfizer. And what Pfizer should have immediately done is cease the clinical trial until an investigation could be done to figure out what was happening. But from the evidence that we've seen and, and from other evidence that's been presented and that we're developing, and I believe discovery would prove, Pfizer knew that what was happening at Ventavia was not limited to Ventavia. What Brooke had witnessed was not limited to what Brooke had witnessed. This was systematic. And it was systematic in part because they were in a rush. And it was systematic in part because they knew an honest review of the information and data would prove that their drug was neither safe nor effective, nor practically speaking, properly labeled or even marketed as a vaccine in the first place. So, you know, they have this novel defense, but before I get into the novel defense, just let me introduce Robert Barnes. I've heard just amazing things about you. You know, people say, Robert Barnes, he's like the best of the best of the best. I mean, you're like a legend when people talk about you. So, you know, we, I'm, I'm not worthy here to talk to you. I just wanted to, to just mention that for our audience who maybe haven't heard of Robert Barnes, he's a force to contend with. Now, there's a video of you being interviewed, and you're, you're talking about the, the, the novel Pfizer defense. And I know you can't wait to, to spill it to, to this group. So why don't you tell us what this novel defense is? And also, because I was talking to, to Warner, and he was saying that they could actually get away with it, that that, that may be, you know, if they, the judge believes it. So tell us what the novel defense is, and tell us if you think that they could pull that off. Pfizer's effective defense is that it doesn't matter if they falsely certified and submitted fraudulent, perjured affidavits and declarations and certifications to the United States government, all of which were the precondition for the approval and authorization of the amount of money, billions and billions of dollars being given to Pfizer over this particular drug, that it doesn't matter if they lied, doesn't matter if they perjured themselves, doesn't matter if they were falsifying affidavits, declarations, and certifications, if the government would have given them and written the check anyway, if the government is going to write us the check, even knowing we committed fraud. If the FDA bureaucrats are in on it, then we're in the clear defense. Usually the defense is raised in the limited context in which the argument is that the particular fraud was inconsequential. So somebody, let's say, submitted something that was inaccurate, but it didn't matter. It's not material under the law. That's the kind of cases they're piggybacking off of. To my knowledge, it has never been applied in this context because these certifications were essential, fundamental, and critical to the check being written, at least for public consumption purposes. I mean, the government has relied upon these. The government has never come out and said, oh, yeah, we know that Pfizer was lying on all these certifications, all these declarations, all these affidavits, all these documents. We know they perjured themselves in mass, and we don't care. They've said, no, we're 
trusting Pfizer here. So Pfizer's trying to sort of sneak in a defense that's usually limited to people who make an inconsequential mistake in terms of the, the government writing the check. It's also a confusion between government bureaucrats and the people. Even the court at times seemed confused on this issue. A lot of courts get confused on this issue. Bureaucrats, these claims are brought in the name of the people of the United States, collectively for the people and the taxpayers. That is not controlled or dictated or determined by what a few bureaucrats think. This is on behalf of the people. And the question is, were the people lied to? And no doubt they were. So they shouldn't get away with this. But there are other cases in other courts that just generally big pharma has got away with a lot, sadly, in the context of our federal courts. Hopefully they don't get away with it here, but it's what they're trying to do. So it's possible that they could get away with it using that defense. Yes. I mean, it, it's possible that if a court buys it and, in, in our view, misapplies the law, in fact, it's become such an issue that it's right before Congress now to amend the law to make clear this can never be done because this little loophole is being expanded to apply to places it's not supposed to apply. Uh, the, this misdefinition and misapplication of materiality, as it's called. And so we hopefully we get some legislative change. But the, the law is clear that our case should go forward. But you never know for sure when you're going up you know, against one of the most powerful companies in the world. So, you know, eventually on appeal, you go higher and higher and higher and you get the right answer. So you're confident, though, that even though maybe the judge may rule incorrectly in your case, that by the time it goes to appeal, that you will eventually win this case, that they they are not that argument is not defensible. Yeah, I, I have confidence in the district court. He said he's committed to the facts and the law. So I've, you know, the, but what is a lot of other lawyers looking at the case say that historically, they, they that unless the government deliberately intervenes in a key TAM case, most federal courts don't go forward and aren't willing to battle uh, against a big company like a, a big pharma company unless the government's on our side, that the power gap ends up being the determinative gap in the case and just in terms of looking at the legal system sociologically, if you will. So I think our hurdle is getting over that perception. The law is still on our side, and I still have hope that the court system at some level will enforce it. Yeah. So Werner, do you, do you think um, you agree with that? This has been a battle that we've been fighting for the last two decades. And, you know, fundamentally in the whistleblower context, only about 10% of these cases get intervened by the federal government. So every citizen have a, has a right under the Federal False Claims Act to bring a case when there's fraud, but very few of them are prosecuted by the federal government. And then those that remain where the federal government does not so-called intervene in the case, then the private individual like Brooke Jackson has to get attorneys and has to proceed on her own. And you can see that we're certainly outnumbered and outgunned by the attorneys and the money on the other side and the big law firms. And you know, judges just have a hard time when you come into court and you say, look, we've got a multi-billion dollar case here and this citizen is, as a whistleblower, wants to vindicate the rights of the taxpayers. And judges have a really difficult time with that. I mean, I've seen it all over the country. So it's really tough. And I do want to mention that, Brooke, just so everybody knows, you know, Brooke, could you tell if we are successful in this case, what do you plan to do with the money? 
Well, uh, well let's talk about how much, but before we, she, she does that, we should say how much money that she could be awarded in this case. It's, it's tens of billions of dollars. There's a lot of different ways to do the math on it because every single claim has a value of roughly $20,000. That's every single shot. Multiply that by you know a couple hundred million and, and you've got an incredible potential claim there. That's called the penalties portion of it. And then you also have the overall contract itself, the contract value, which I'm not sure what the current number on that is. Do you know that current number, Robert? Well, it was at the time the suit was filed 1.9 billion. But as you saw from the beginning of the show, the total amount being paid to Pfizer, all derivative of these lies and deceptions and misrepresentations and fraud is now estimated to be over worth over 100 billion to Pfizer. So that gives you an idea of the scale. I believe it's the most profitable drug in the history of Pfizer. And it's probably worth rem reminding people Pfizer is, to my knowledge, the most criminally fined drug company in the history of the world. So she could be awarded $100 billion. She could be awarded a trillion dollars. If you, there's something called the penalties provision. So you multiply $20,000 by 100 million, let's say, and figure that out, plus the value of the contract. It is really, it's a very strong statute if you succeed. Okay, so she's, she, could, she could be going to Disneyland easily on that. What would you do with the money? You get a trillion dollars. Just won a trillion dollar settlement. Well, something Probably I guess you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna... you have to pay your lawyers, right? Sure. That would be the first thing. There's that. But there's, there's also a, a part of the, the False Claims Act you know, Warner, if you want to tell them about the retaliation for, for my firing, that, in my mind, is my reward. Right. So will you explain that just quickly, and then I'll tell you what I plan to do. With well, the, the False Claims Act has two provisions for the payment, and one is to protect the whistleblower because Brooke's been fired. She's not receiving any salary, nothing. It's damaged her career. So she, the, it's called 3730H. It's the whistleblower retaliation provision. That bit of money, which is not anywhere close to this, that bit of money would go to Brooke to make her whole, so to speak. The other portion are the penalties against the company. So that part, Steve, I just wanted you to understand. So that part of the lawsuit is, is mine. Um, the rest, you know, the whatever it ends up being, billions, trillions. From the very beginning, when I first met uh, Robert, I've wanted to make it clear that that is not my money, that that belongs to the people and those that have been injured by this vaccine. And I will leave it to, to these guys to figure out how we set up a fund to make sure that this money goes to them. If there's anything successful, we'll go to them. To the vaccine injured. Correct, yes. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, because right now zero has been paid out to the vaccine injured. There's not been a single case that has been adjudicated in favor of the person filing. And there have been some very serious cases that have been filed with the CICP and they have awarded zero. So it's pretty bad. So good, good for you. Thank you. So Brooke, I, I mean, this is a long <laughs> process for you, right? This is going to be like- Year three, you, going how, into how year long? three. I'm oh, sorry? I said, we're going into year three for me. I, I alerted the FDA to Pfizer's problems 644 days ago today.
Wow. How long do you expect this trial to take? How long do you expect to be basically in court for, is it for the next two years, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years? Well, I'll stick around as long as it takes to to bring to do, light do you what, know? what's happened. Do you know, has, has, several, has Robert clued you in? I mean, we have a, a tentative, I believe, court uh, trial date scheduled for 2024, but we have to, you know, we have hurdles to, to get past or over before wow. then that I think first one's due August 6th, guys, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, so yes. you're taking it a day at a time, but Robert, what do you think, how long do you think this is going to take before this thing concludes? If it stays with the judge's schedule and he denies Pfizer's motion to dismiss, then we will go to trial in the summer of 2024 or late spring, early summer of 2024. If for some reason there's some motion granted either to dismiss or summary judgment, then that will go all the way up the appellate chain and then come all the way back. So the case, the earliest I could see the case getting resolved is 2024. The latest, as Werner can tell you, could be a decade from now. Wow. So if you had a crystal ball and we were doing a betting pool, what would you, what would you guess this uh, thing gets I, resolved at? And, and how do you think it gets resolved? Do you think it's going to be resolved and, and Brooke is going to walk away with a trillion dollars? Or what do you think, practically speaking, like how long and how much? This is the foundational fundamental case challenging and contesting what, what happened here. They're trying to set a precedent here so they can do it again. And so it's not just about this case and the people that have been injured by this drug, but they're going to use this as a model moving forward. So the goal is to put it to a stop. If we get a trial in 2024, we will win and prevail and hopefully stop this from ever reoccurring again, hopefully bankrupt Pfizer in the process for doing what they did uh, and go forward. If, on the other hand, we have to go through a lot of appeals and everything else, then we're probably some years away. We do anticipate uh, that, or I anticipate there'll probably be a change in administration in 2025, and maybe a new administration will be more conscientious at enforcing some of these provisions. So there's always the possibility that at some point along, and in fact, the current uh, U.S. Attorney's Office has remained open to intervening in this case. They're letting us do the hard work, and they may step in at some juncture, which is kind of typical with key TAM cases in general, though this has some unique political and public policy consequences. So if they intervene, could they basically throw it to the to the drug company and, and end it for you and really screw things up? They can always intervene and, and settle on very uh, low different terms. Now that has to get approved by the judge. We have an opportunity to object. They, they have limits in terms of being able to settle the retaliation claim, though. So the, they can settle one, the, the key TAM claim is easier for them to control than the retaliation employment claim is. But yes, and in fact, government has done that upon occasion. So it's going to be a very interesting road going forward. No doubt about that. Wow. And this is, this is just going to be just super exciting to, to see what happens. Maybe we should open it up for questions, for audience questions, Louisa. Right. We do have audience questions from Trisha. Can the lawyer speak to the brand new Supreme Court ruling that just released today, June 30th, for the health workers in New York State um, as it's concerned? I'm not familiar with this ruling, to be honest. I haven't, I haven't been in touch today on this particular one. So are, are you all familiar with it and, and what happened today? 
I just saw the news flash. So I, I don't know if that came from the U.S. Supreme Court. It may have been also a denial of cert, which is what the U.S. Supreme Court has been doing is dodging a lot of the vaccine mandate cases other than those that were in the federal employment context. So the uh, or federal contractor or the OSHA rule context. So New York and Maine, of course, have denied uh, a bunch of religious exemptions and accommodations. The federal courts in those jurisdictions have affirmed and approved that, unfortunately, and the U.S. Supreme Court hasn't handled it yet. I do think when the U.S. Supreme Court ever fully takes the case, I still believe they will enforce Title VII as to vaccine mandate violations of Title VII. But I assume that's what people are referring to is the Supreme Court has, do has dodged it this term. They refuse to reverse the lower federal courts, including the First and Second Circuit Court of Appeals on that issue. I see. Thank you. You, you know, something about the medical workers, and, and we work with a lot of medical workers in Ohio, and one of the things I'm really concerned with is the amount of vax injuries that we're seeing in medical workers and, and what it's doing to the entire profession. You know, if medical workers are going to be first in line for experimental genetic therapies and those therapies go wrong, we're going to lose our people that are taking care of us in hospitals and doctor's offices. I'm very worried about it. We've seen a lot of injury in our medical workers, a lot of people knocked out. Brooke met one of those a few weeks ago in Ohio, and her testimony was just uh, it was just devastating. It, she had an entire room of 100 people in tears over it. 36-year-old mother of two. We've got another question. Are there any resources for combating VAX requirements for professional seminars where you can't get it without showing a vaccine card? In certain, depending on the case, depending on the location, depending on the jurisdiction, there may be state laws applicable. And in some of those cases, they may be public accommodations in such a way that either Title VII or the ADA may apply. So it depends on the state that they're in, where there's maybe more robust state law protections. It's extraordinary that there's even some people doing my body, my choice protest, but they're requiring you to be vaccinated before you can join it. So it's kind of an interesting irony <laughs> of, of a protest. But so we're going to continue to explore how far they can go as they try to reinstate and reinstitute sort of the eugenics kind of agenda of a century ago. Yes, thank you. From Nicole, Brooke, appreciate your bravery. I'm a 30 year clinical research monitor. Mm. What did the ICON CRA do? They should have noted all of these findings. Sure, that's a great question. So Pfizer delegated some of their clinical trial responsibilities to the contract research organization ICON in this case. The monitoring plan that was developed was not followed. Because of COVID, some clinical trial sites were allowing on-site monitoring visits, others were not allowing those to occur. So the workaround was to develop a 21 CFR compliant platform. So the source documentation, informed consent forms, labs, et cetera, could be uploaded to this platform and that would be the, the monitoring process. The monitors would have access to that web-based platform and they could monitor that way, but that did not happen contractually. I believe that <clears throat> they were, um, Ventavia was required to upload the source documents within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And when I arrived on site, we were about 28 days late with that, with that documentation being uploaded. So it just wasn't happening. Thank you. Um, 
This is from Alicia. This may be too soon. We're, we're not sure. Are there any updates on military injection injuries or are there lawsuits? Are there any lawsuits that are open for others to join? I retired today after 29 years in the Army National Guard in order to keep retirement benefits instead of getting kicked out for not following orders, not getting the genetic modifying shot. That's the first part. And then I have soldiers who are being told they will not get paid being code R non-punitive non-pay status. Is there anything we can do legally? So any updates on military injection injuries or lawsuits open for others to join? And then that second question, I come back to it. Well, I, I mean, I can tell you there is one in Ohio, Wright Patterson Air Force Base employees are suing. There's actually a couple of lawsuits down there. So I'm not on that lawsuit, but we are referring to an attorney who's running that case. But those are illegal orders, aren't they, to, to get vaccinated? And so you're not required to follow an illegal order, so you can't be ejected for not complying with an illegal order, right? You would think, Steve, but they're going to be going through court martials here very quickly. Is there anything you can... She says, is there anything we can do legally? The ones who are being told they will not get paid being code R, non-punitive, non-pay status. Uh, Liberty Council down in Florida has brought class actions on behalf of everybody in the different military groups. There's other class actions in other parts of the state country as well. It looks like the judge is going to rule in their, in their favor because the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act has a very robust definition of religious protection. It applies to everybody in the federal government, including members of the military. And we anticipate, I mean, I'm not part of that case, but those following it and do anticipate that the judge will issue a favorable ruling at some point. All the Supreme Court said was the military, Kavanaugh kind of backed off and basically said, you can do deployment decisions however you want regardless of religious accommodation objections to the vaccine, but they haven't embraced any other aspect of the military's policies and procedures. And so there are, there is pending litigation. And I know the lead council I'm aware of in Florida is Liberty Council. Okay. Thank you. That's helpful. Thank you so much. This one, this question is for you, Robert from David, how could a new congressional majority next year help with your lawsuit and what could they investigate with subpoena power? A bunch of things. So, I mean, they can help with the lawsuit by clear, clarifying False Claims Act claims as to who can bring them, how they can bring them, that, that big corrupt fraudsters can't get away with it based on some complicity of a government agency or a government agency not doing its investigative job and just delegating authority to the private companies that are committing the fraud. So there's clear reform that can happen in the False Claims Act. Some of that's already under concern and under review in Congress already. The second is they could definitely make more clear when a vaccine can be mandated and when it can't be in terms of existing Title VII and ADA law. So they could clarify that the way a lot of states have clarified that, you know, Tennessee, Arkansas, other states that have passed very good legislation on this. And then in terms of what was the second question? What could they investigate with subpoena power? Oh, they could investigate everybody. So, you know, have a real, use that. I mean, the January 6th committee is investigating everything and everybody in God's green earth. So they're going to do, you know, if it's good enough for January 6th, it's definitely good enough for the biggest drug company scam in the history of America. Mm -hmm. uh, By the way, I did a Substack article about, and I listed close to two dozen things that are very disconcerting in the Pfizer trial. And like the government's not looking at, any of them, they just don't want to know at all. (laughs) 
it's like there's no, nothing going on there. There's no inspector general. There is no accountability at all right now. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. I mean, they've completely abandoned their jobs. They just delegate it to the big drug companies. They take the big drug companies at their word. Then the big drug companies say that there can't be anybody that else judicially to look at them because the FDA is not doing its job. So, you know, it's, it's, it's this kind of circle jerk of immunity. And so the, there needs to be change on that fundamentally in the law. But no doubt, if the House is serious, if the Senate is serious, they will open up meaningful, real full investigations to vet this, to, sh to show the world what took place here, because it's one of the worst scandals in the history of uh, American medicine. And mankind. Chuck Grassley is trying to change the Federal False Claims Act to make it more useful. They have this materiality requirement, which could be cleaned up. And they also have something called 9B. It's this particularity, the who, what, when, where, how, that's not required in most civil litigation. It's just simply notice pleading. And we need to get back to notice pleading, which we used to have in the False Claims Act arena. The other thing I did see in that VRPAC meeting this week, that one of the people talking did suggest that they look at safety issues. So I was glad to see somebody realizes that maybe they ought to add safety to their uh, review. Which That'd I always be nice after all this time. <laughs> yeah, after all this time. Oh, oh novel. <laughs> Gosh. Wow. Um, okay, here's a question for both attorneys from Robbie. How will court scheduled release of internal trial Pfizer trial documents affect this case? Those documents Pfizer sought to hide for 75 years. It helps. So we're working with them. In fact, I think we're going to be meeting with some of the folks that are helping organize a lot of the data and information on that next week in New York City. So making sure that we coordinate a lot of that so that we can get as much intelligence and information as we can from those documents. Because in this case, in Brooke's case, they were obsessed with stopping discovery until at least December. So there must be something embarrassing that they're hiding. And they were obsessed. They, they, Pfizer was more obsessed with what I was tweeting than what their own discovery would reveal. And, you know, the, so that tells me there's a lot of dirt there that they're sitting on. We're already seeing that in Europe, the European commissioners text with Pfizer to authorize certain things. And they've gone missing. They've just kind of disappeared. They just vanished. You know, we, they can't find them, unfortunately. So my guess is there's a lot more that's there to be developed. And it's great work that Del Bigtree and others are doing and Aaron Siri and others are doing in the FOIA litigation. And we definitely plan on coordinating and getting all of that intel and information so that we can utilize it in this and related cases. How many attorneys combined do you guys have working, you know, essentially how many attorneys are working for Brooke? We have a number of attorneys that have agreed to help out. I would say there's six core attorneys that are willing to dedicate real time in terms of looking at the pleadings. There's probably another 10 or so that expressed an interest and have expressed support. Yeah, oh, the, we're, we're putting together, a, uh, or Werner is the lead on it, putting together a dream team to help Brooke because we're up against everybody. I mean, just the last little minor court call had Pfizer's corporate count, multiple Pfizer corporate counsel, Pfizer firms, Ventavia firms, Icon firms. I mean, there's at least a dozen lawyers on their side that are, you know, working on, and the firms they have have hundreds and hundreds of lawyers. So, yeah. you know, the, there's full, full, full employment act for lawyers. Oh, definitely for corporate lawyers. I mean, the, it, it, this will always be David and Goliath, but we're trying to get as many good Davids as we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're outnumbered by what, what, what do you think you're, you It'll know, be you're 10 to one, 10 to one, oh. 20 to one, something like that. By 10, the end 10 of the or game. 20 to one. Yeah. 
Okay. And they're what getting paid. You like, the, you like those odds then? A couple thousand. Yeah, it's better than 100 to one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're getting paid, you know, 1,000, 1,500 an hour to do the work. So they're, they're just cleaning up on this. I mean, they've already spent probably tens of millions of dollars on the legal defense. It's one of the way big pharma gets away with a lot of this. They have conflicted out almost every major firm in the country. Any big corporate firm has represented somebody in big pharma at some point. It was actually featured as an issue in the latest Goliath TV show was how it was a big pharma case, how they had scammed to conflict him out potentially of a thing, Billy Bob Thornton's character. So it's, wow. it's a real problem in the legal area. Wow. Yeah. Here's a question from Ari. If Pfizer is convicted of fraud and the FDA is just as guilty as a complicit partner, how is that the FDA not equally guilty of fraud? Well, to a certain degree, the FDA, what the FDA has really done here is they're not being, they're, they're doing the three monkey routine. See no evil, hear no evil, know no evil. They're just delegating to Pfizer and saying, hey, as long as Pfizer, we trust Pfizer, whatever they've represented is true. But people, but what we're seeing is our system is broken. The regulatory agencies too frequently, the FDA in particular, is captured. As, as Robert Kennedy repeatedly notes, a large part of their budget comes from big drug companies. And we're seeing the system fail. And, and it's really, there's been people warning, people like Robert Kennedy for years, that this system doesn't work well. People are just seeing it on, on the most severe scale they possibly could. But I think they're, they're, they're targeting in on you know, what, what we read about in the article, which was that Pfizer's excuse was the whole um, FDA knew, the government knew about it, they knew about it. So I, I think maybe they're talking to that piece of it. Like if, if they did know about it, if there was a piece of it that they knew about, then could they be guilty of fraud? I think, uh, well, inconsequential because the only people who can prosecute them are the government. <laughs> so it's, it's unfortunate and a little, little circular situation there. But the, the, the way I, Pfizer has not produced proof that they admitted they lied to the FDA. Instead, their claim is, well, the FDA was aware of the accusations. That's not at all the same as being aware of the truth of those accusations. And to my knowledge, the FDA has never admitted and acknowledged, nor has Pfizer, that they made false statements. Pfizer just claiming it doesn't matter because they wrote the check anyway. But that's not, they're trying to take a little loophole and make it bigger than where it doesn't apply. But there are serious problems with the FDA. But I think, I don't think a lot of people at the FDA are in on it. I think the FDA, people at the FDA don't care about doing their job because it's easier to not do their job to continue to get rewarded with promotions. And then when they leave, who's going to hire them? It's going to be big drug companies they go to work for. Right. You know, whenever I, I, I see the FDA, they're they're always saying that we haven't verified anything that the drug companies send us. Like uh, in all these external committee meetings, they're just like the pastor saying, hey, 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 hey. We're, we're not, uh, you know, we're just passing it on. We haven't looked at anything. That's exactly, and that's the, it's a Pontius Pilate kind of thing. You know, the, now we have reason to suspect that there are people that uh, may have more culpability, but that would be a discovery kind of issue. But I, I but that's, ba the biggest problem is not so much that the FDA is deliberately in on it as the FDA is not doing any regulatory control. All the incentives are to let it go through. 
And so that their personal incentives, their political in, uh, incentives, their institutional incentives. So when 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 you know people like Biden are writing bigger and bigger, bigger checks, no matter the circumstance or situation, even for drugs they now admit don't work in this context. There's just no incentive for anybody at the FDA to be the aggressive, proactive person. It's partially why they were so harsh and retaliatory towards Brooke, that the message was if you see anything, you better say nothing or you're gonna end up without a job and blackballed and blacklisted from the industry and we'll attack you publicly and we'll smear you in court filings and all the rest. That, that they're sending a message to every other whistleblower out there. So I think that's the problem is more the failure and unwillingness to do their job than overt complicity. Indeed, they often just kind of don't wanna know in terms of the individual regulator. But are there, does anybody from the FDA or CDC call you up and say, hey, Robert, I want to rat on these guys and you know, I'm willing to sacrifice my job and I'll tell you what the inside scoop is and here's what they're really doing. And they're, they know this stuff is, is dangerous. Like, do you ever get any of those calls or nobody is, you know, everybody is just like afraid to speak out and say anything bad and you just never get these insiders? It's very, very rare. Werner can speak to it. Yeah, I do want to speak to that because we have had some uh, CMS whistleblowers contact us. So there are in every agency and every company, there's good people. And those good people do reach out and, and Robert and I welcome them to contact us and let us know what they know. You know, these are good people who are sitting there suffering, watching this horrible stuff occur, and they want to talk, and we will do everything we can to protect you and protect your identity in this process. Absolutely. And so fact, those, those people are gold. When, oh, when no doubt. Can... I've heard, heard from a whistleblower today in another context that was, you know, someone who worked at a hospital, saw everything, was trying to make sure the VAERS data was properly reported was terminated for that reason. They said, uh, you know, you don't understand. Like what they told Brooke, uh, you're, not, you're not a good fit. Well, what does a good fit mean? Apparently it means covering up criminal behavior uh, yeah, exactly. and covering up uh, the illicit consequences of that criminal behavior, sadly, by too many people at the top. Wow. Yeah, I mean, like, Brooke, are there any other sort of co-whistleblowers that, that you met on the job in Ventavia that said, that saw the same thing that you did that are also joining you or is it, are you alone in blowing the whistle here? Well, I was certainly, certainly alone for a long time. In June of 21, the um, director of business operations actually reached out to me in a text message and apologized for, you know, what, what, you know, getting for me getting fired that she had to, to sign off on that document. And she had herself just recently been fired from Ventavia for very, very similar reasons for bringing up concerns. I think in total now I've, I've spoke with seven employees from Ventavia, That's but none, but none that want to, you know, come out publicly and speak to what they saw. Right. But they'll, they'll give you information yeah. privately. Right. Mm -hmm. Sort of the follow-up question to that, the prior one that I asked, isn't there some sort of Nuremberg type statute that prevents the FDA and Pfizer from quote, just following orders when instructed by their superiors to commit fraud? Yeah, I'm litigating this in other contexts. Right now, the problem is federal courts don't want to enforce the Nuremberg Code, even when it's statutorily codified. So their excuse is that what they're wanting to do is basically say only the government 
can enforce some of these rules and laws in order to escape accountability. And that's not what the law has traditionally held. That's not what the law was for. But basically, we're facing some judicial hostility to the willingness to enforce the Nuremberg Code on behalf of private citizens. Thank you. This one's for Brooke from Andridge. Thank you for your courage and for speaking out. Have you been contacted by other clinical trial administrators with similar insights to yours after the BMJ report came out? And what has their experience been? I have no one from industry has, has reached out to me except for the employees that were at Ventavia. I have had clinical trial participants that were in this study reach out to me and I'm in, in contact with, with them. One in particular that is, I think, talking to my team. Just out of curiosity, would it be safe to say that all of you are not vaccinated with the COVID vaccines? I identify as vaccinated, depending on the circumstances. <laughs> but no. a federal judge didn't like that explanation once because he was going to tell the jury that I was vaccinated. I said, I never said I was vaccinated. I just said I identified as such. I'm, but, I'm not uh, vaccinated, Steve. Or, uh, sorry, you, you are not vaccinated? No, no. Brooke? I've been vaccinated. You have been. What happened? With what? With COVID vaccine? Yes. What, what happened? How did you, how'd that happen? You got one or two? Two. Ooh. This is before you started the job or after you started the job? This was in early January of 2021. In Texas, we were able to choose the site location where the vaccinations were occurring and choose which, which product we wanted. I chose Moderna because I thought that this was just a problem with Pfizer. Wow. You won't make that mistake again, will you? No. Yeah, so Rick said an unfortunate crash course in the reality yeah. of big farm. But for a lot of people that have been in this industry for forever, they have they've never witnessed anything like this. I mean, right. I mean, a lot of people looking at the studies are like like out of Argentina, they're play, they're like, we're seeing things we have never witnessed before. And so it is extraordinary. And, you know, when you get a crash course in how the system really works, it's always a little bit of a shock. You know, it's, it's your more idealistic person who ends up becoming a whistleblower because they believe, I mean, Edward Snowden was this way, really believed in what the government was doing, shocked to discover that, you know, folks were lying. And so I, I think that's not common. I, I've, been a, I've been around the block enough with the government not to, to have been skeptical from the get-go, but that's not necessarily an ex educational experience you want to deliver to everybody else. Right. So, so I guess the question is, Robert, in this case, are you like appalled at like, hey, I thought it was bad. You know, I knew it was bad because my previous history, when you realize that it was this bad, this is like over the top is, I mean, are you being surprised at how bad this particular case is? Uh, it's it's egregious to a level that I haven't seen in any other case. And maybe uh, Werner can talk about it in his experience as well. But the way I describe it to people, I say the simple way to understand Brooks' case is they were so careless, so reckless, that they had needles sticking out of bags, used needles sticking out of bags, and they had people's private medical records so the, plastered up on the wall of the cafeteria so the janitor could read them and say, oh, look, you know, Susie's got an STD and whatever else. When you're that careless, 
that reckless? Do you think they took adverse events seriously? Do you think they took unblinding seriously? Do you think they took any of these things seriously? So from that perspective, I think it's the most egregious example of a complete failure to follow very elementary safety and, and efficiency metrics that has ever been done in the history of a drug like this. And this is the drug that's being administered at the biggest scale on the quickest time frame in right. world history. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's fair to say that this is the biggest goof up ever in medical history. Absolutely. The biggest fraud ever. Steve, I am so stunned by this. I've dealt with bad situations throughout my career. We confront people and corporations and governments doing bad things. But, you know, this really crossed the Rubicon for me into a morality issue. It's very rare when you confront an individual that's actually evil, but the way that our system is working right now is evil. It is against humanity and it's really, it's so destructive. We've got purges going on in our country. We've crossed the Rubicon into something totally different that is unprecedented. And I'm just there in my head at this point, you know, and the the deal with the kids vaccinations that they're approving here, no way. No way. I mean, you're, you're attacking children. You know, that's evil. That's evil personified there. So, I, I mean, that's where I am. I hate that our country is there, but, you know, that, that's where I am. The entire system is broken down. When do, you th- when do you think this ends? Do you think this ends in a year or two years? Like, when does America wake up here? I mean, people are dying. I mean, there's, I've got surveys that show we killed half a million Americans. And Nobody wants to take a look at my survey and, you know, the surveys show that myocarditis rates are like 3.7%. That's 500 times higher than what the CDC is telling people. I mean, people are being lied to about how safe and, and effective these vaccines are. These vaccines are not safe. They're not effective. They're killing people. They're killing massive numbers of Americans. And the press doesn't want to take a look at it. The, the Congress basically trusts the FDA and says, hey, your stats must be wrong because they differ from, like, when does America wake up? I mean, what is it going to take? Because the doctors are seeing these deaths that are happening to young kids. And they're basically, they're, they're like looking the other way. They're saying, hey, I'm not going to jeopardize my job. Another, another kid, another vaccine, you know, and they're shutting up about it, right? And there's there's nothing breaking that cycle here because they don't want to lose their job. So what is the, how does it, how do we break this thing open? I mean, it's the biggest thing, the best historical parallel I can draw is Chernobyl. So after Chernobyl, the Soviet Union decided to convince everybody that there had been no medical fallout from all that radioactivity. And when people came forward with clear problems, doctors were told to tell them they have phobia they have radiophobia and they, they tried to like make that last and it lasted actually for two years. But then there was just so much blowback because so many injuries. And, you know, when you had kids being born, babies being born with, with fish tails, you know, you had, you had calves with, you know, their leg was next to their ear. You could only get away with that for so long. And even the Soviet Union and its totalitarian system arguably collapsed over the lies of Chernobyl. And I think the lies that the that that have been spun out in defense of this mass medical experimentation of, of, of horrific failure 
I think as the injuries accumulate and people start asking the right questions and people start making the right inquiries and enough conscientious doctors and nurses continue to come forward, it will at some point reach a critical mass that the system collapses. And I think the system will regret it because it will lead to people never trusting them for generations because of what they've done. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that's the, the, the result. Well, it's well, it's been well-deserved. I mean, what, what they've done is, is, is unthinkable. Yes. I'd love to ask a little question of today's news. This was asked by someone and I thought, oh, I'd love to know what you thought. Um, question from Sarai. Any comment on Alex Berenson settling with Twitter prior to discovery? The government had, the court only given him limited discovery. And given Musk taking over Twitter, there was already debate about in the court whether or not his case was mooted. Um, so uh, I hope it means he's going to be reinstated. We'll, we'll see. But I think that any lawyer would have advised him to take any settlement that would have moved the ball forward in some meaningful manner. We just don't know. The, we won't know that for a little while. But I think that was I think there are people who are disappointed who wanted him to march forward and onward. But, you know, that's a client you know, situation and it's up to him what he wanted to do. And so I think that's why he did what he did. But there were people who thought he had a little more discovery than he did. The judge dismissed all but one limited claim and only gave him limited discovery on that claim. So and it wasn't clear you'd be able to prove that. So the question was, do he, does he march forward to the court of appeals and so forth? Or does he get something out of this that can positively move the ball forward? And hopefully Elon Musk will be a man of his word and he buys Twitter and he restores free speech. We'll know because the number one place that free speech needs to be restored is the medical community and the professional community who's been exposing the fraud related to COVID for the last two years. And my understanding is that some other folks have sued Twitter. So he has helped carve a pathway and demonstrated a pathway, just like Brooke is doing, in terms of what you can do. And Twitter's not done yet. They've got other ones coming. The big case is, is Bobby Kennedy's case against Facebook and children's health defense pending before the Ninth Circuit. That, that will either reverse the course of, of where the censorship train is going, or it will show the necessity of legislative reform in Congress. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Great. Thank you. One final question for Brooke and both attorneys from Lisa. What do you think it will take to get the masses to understand the egregious failures of the Pfizer vaccines, the injuries, the corruption, et cetera? How do we red pill others? Expose them to people who've been injured and who've been basically gaslit about the consequences of those injuries. The more people that see that, the more people tend to wake up, in my experience, in this field. The fraud and the other stuff, they only get a little bit. But when they see real injuries and real injuries that are not being remedied, that tends to get their attention. Especially when it's their friends. Yes, yes. And when they know people, someone who's I been mean, injured. True believers. I mean, I, what I've said is like the people that were the most critical of aspects of our vaccine regulatory system are not people that were anti-vax. They're people that grew up deeply believing in the vaccine system. And then they then something happens and somebody gets injured. And then they're like, hold on, how did this system not work to usually protect their child? That's what gets them active and engaged. And they discover, wow, we've got some problems in our system. That anytime you give immunity to anybody for something, it's always going to go sideways and south. It's like giving somebody a clean plea deal without any pre-negotiation. There's a reason they're asking for that plea deal, and it ain't because they're innocent. There's the same. It, we should get rid of all immunity for drug companies, period. And that would be major improvement by itself. And hopefully, more people will wake up from that because of what's happened here. That's exactly what I was going to say. 
<laughs> yes, hundred percent. Yes, he just beat you to it. <laughs> Any other final comments? I know it's just fantastic to be here for the people that had asked about the toddlers and the kids. Children's Health Defense is adding that in a claim against the FDA that we're filing as an amended complaint tomorrow, challenging their authorization for everybody six months old and over. Also challenging the fact that they're lying to the world, lying to kids, lying to families, and how that makes it impossible for parents to trust the FDA about anything going forward. If they're willing to lie about this. So you know, that suit uh, also is going forward. Yeah, I mean, how can they justify an emergency I mean, I looked at the death data in Massachusetts. There were no deaths from, if you're five to 11 years old, there's not a single COVID death in the two years from 2020 to 2021. Not, there were zero COVID deaths. How could you justify an emergency use? And especially, it's one thing to make it available. Let's say somebody out there wanted it. That's one thing. That would be a different argument. Here, they're lying to people about it. I mean, they have Elmo yesterday promoting it through Sesame Street. Elmo is up there saying, yes, go out. Oh, I just had a discussion how wonderful this is and how safe it is. Now, I mean, that's how nefarious they are being. Yeah, well, we, Boy, we that's, did go that's under there. really low. Yeah, we know. did go under the Sesame Street Elmo post and put that uh, it was actually from one of our team members that gave it to somebody else. We didn't do it under VSRF, but uh, sudden Muppet death syndrome. We were like, you didn't hear Elmo died yesterday. Right, <laughs> myocarditis. I saw the, I, I saw the article on, on Elmo dying from myocarditis. There's several out there. Louisa, the last thing that I would like to say is just that, you know, if you're a whistleblower, we want to hear from you. So, so reach out to us. And, and I do want to say there are some difficulties contacting the attorneys. We're buried in contacts and calls, but please persist. I mean, we want to hear from you. We're going to try to get back to you as efficiently and quickly as possible. We need to hear your stories, not just on, on this product, but all other drug products. I mean, there's problems at every level of the pharma industry. This is just the worst of it. And every level of federal contracting, there's problems. So please those whistleblowers out there, reach out. If you're internal to the government or internal to the company, we want to hear from you. You know, we'll try to protect you. Like I said, that's my encouragement to you. You have, you're critical. Without Brooke, we wouldn't know this stuff. We need people like Brooke. And thank you, Brooke, of course, as always. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. I, I love that you said that. And I hope that people that are listening will pass this on to anyone that's told them a story that they've not been willing to go public with and that they might think twice after hearing Brooke and her courage to come forward. So thank you. Thank you all three of you for being with us tonight. We really appreciate this. Um, it, it's really meaningful to get this word, this awareness out here and we'll be sending the replay of this video, um, not only to our Odyssey, but also to our entire list. So we'll definitely be posting uh, pieces of this in the entire uh, broadcast um, that way. So thank you again. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank Just you. a couple other um, quick news pieces. Um, as actually Warner Mendenhall mentioned, he mentioned evil. And if you watch the June 28th testimony with Dr. Peter McCullough, both he and Malone, Robert Malone testified, and that was mentioned. He had a big segment on that. Um, but the big news that you see on the screen, Drs. McCullough, Malone, and Dr. Brian Tyson have joined together in a lawsuit against Twitter. Here we go, another Twitter lawsuit to fight censorship. 
The theory of their case is really interesting. They're claiming that Twitter is basically a common carrier, sort of like a phone company. Their role is just to provide platform where conversations take place. And therefore they have no right to interfere with the content of people's conversations. I love it, it's very interesting. We'll um, be eager to follow up with that and how that is going. That was posted just yesterday. Um, and also, the Florida Surgeon General, Dr. Joseph Ladapo, has been sparring with the White House Coronavirus Subcommittee. He posted a letter to them on Twitter outlining the false White House allegations and setting the record straight. They reply that he was doubling down on his, quote, anti-vax rhetoric and endangering the life of kids. His response, it's here on the screen. Any other labels you want to throw at me? The conversation at the grown-up table is about why the COVID-19 vaccine for children was approved with no data or clinical benefit. You're free to come join the adults once you're done name calling. That's the perfect response, wasn't it? David's gonna put that link on the in the chat. There's more on the story in that link and that tweet is buried in that link too, but you can definitely scroll up and down um, for a little bit more. Um, if you'll join us next Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern, FLCCC doctors, Pierre Corey and Dr. Paul Merrick talk about fighting back against attempts by the COVID establishment to silence doctors. They'll also walk us through any new feedback they're getting on their protocols for COVID treatment and on their I Recover um, vaccine injured protocol. Um, and also joining the call will be vaccine injured Danae Dixon, who will share her story of perseverance. She is Dr. Pierre Corey's patient. So that will be really interesting. So same place, same time. Um, we look forward to seeing you next week. And uh, Clubhouse, join us tonight. We encourage our viewers to go onto our Clubhouse, continue the conversation where VSRF volunteers have been live streaming this webinar. We'll look for the link in the chat to know where to find them. It is an app on your phone. It does not work on the desktop. So if you see the link in the chat, that just identifies the room, but hop on your phone and uh, you can find um, that there. So we hope you will join us. Um, and just finally, before we say goodnight, we'd like to dedicate this weekly update to the memory of someone very special. I saw a few of you posting in the chat as well. We had some sad news today, Dr. Zeb Zelenko, as he was known. He died today after a battle of can with cancer. We honor his memory, his legacy, and his work. Um, I posted today um, in socials, uh, your light, your spirit, your heart for others, and your determination to save lives will live on in the many that admire your work and continue to carry the torch each day. You will be missed by so many. We see a few of his accomplishments on the screen. He was the innovator of the Zelenko protocol, which through his work with hydroxychloroquine and a full protocol of nutraceuticals, saved 99% of the COVID-19 patients that he treated. He was nominated for the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He's recognized as a hero at the U.S. Senate Homeland Security Committee hearing. He was published in top peer-reviewed journals with world-renowned physicians. He gave counsel to White House personnel and governments and was a board-certified family physician for over 20 years. On our way out tonight, we have a clip of a video to show you of an interview that he did in March of this year with Dr. Drew, and may he rest in peace. That video is going to be followed by a life insurance video just released um, and uh, Dr. Robert Malone's Texas state, state testimony, a little clip from that. So uh, we wish everyone a good night and we'll see you next week. Thanks. I got red-pilled when Cuomo, March 27th, 2020, issued an executive order blocking pharmacies in New York from dispensing hydroxychloroquine. Now that wasn't a direct attack on me and my practice. Why? because I was the only one doing it. And so just imagine from my perspective, I have, I'm in the middle of a 
inferno of disease. With God's grace, I, I figured out something, but by the way, which has now been validated to reduce hospitalization and death with multiple peer-reviewed studies by 85%, meaning if you risk stratify patients, take out the high-risk patients, you treat them early with an antiviral, anti-inflammatory approach, you virtually eliminate the need for hospitalization. And it's not me saying it. By the way, it doesn't have to be hydroxychloroquine. It could be ivermectin. It could be EGCG, quercetin, steroids, blood thinners, monoclonal antibodies, Luvox, colchicine. We have many, many tools in our armament. And I found the most effective treatment is custom tailored to each individual patient. Because it depends on their history, depends on their presentation, depends on their preferences. And, and then you kind of put together a treatment approach that is unique to that patient. That's what I found the best kind of outcomes. But um, yeah, so when Cuomo blocked access, I couldn't understand it. And, and then my patients started dying again because they couldn't get the medication. Anyway, so I did research again. And on the NIH server, I found a substitute for hydroxychloroquine, which is called quercetin. I remember being on your show saying it, and you actually wrote it down and looked it up. I, I remember mm -hmm. that. Uh, and mm -hmm. what, what it and was. I, then I took it. Everybody oh, took it. Yeah, we all took it back then. Yeah. With the zinc. Here's something funny. Yeah. I, I, and the D. I did five. The C. I did five interviews in Israel about quercetin. It sold out inside the whole entire country. Mm. Anyway, so what quercetin was, was a, it's a bioflavonoid or a plant derivative. It's found in onions and apple peels, but more importantly, it was over the counter. So I remember, I'm getting goosebumps. I remember like leaning back and saying, you know, I just found the cure to tyranny. Because there are two reasons why people died from COVID. One was delaying treatment. And two was governmental tyranny by blocking access to life-saving information, life-saving medication. There is a way that we can get a rough estimate of the number of deaths. Because according to the Society for Human Resource Management, the average death benefit for employer-provided group life insurance is one-year salary. And so then, all we have to do is do the math. If the average annual salary of people covered by group life insurance policies in the U.S. is around $70,000, then we just take the amounts that Lincoln National paid out in the year 2020 and in the year 2021 in order to get an estimate of the number of deaths. And after doing this, it shows that in the year 2021, there might have been 20,647 deaths of working adults, again, that were just covered by this one insurance company. And as you can see, that will be an over 100% increase in the number of deaths from the prior year. At least according to this calculation, there would have been approximately 12,000 more deaths in the year 2021 as compared to the year 2020. And again, just to mention that it's only for people that are covered by this one insurance company. However, that is not the full picture because besides these numbers for group policies, these financial documents also showed the numbers for ordinary death benefits, meaning benefits paid out not under a group policy, but rather under individual life insurance plans. And those numbers, they likewise saw a spike over the past three years. In 2019, 
which is, again, the baseline the year prior to the start of the pandemic, Lincoln National paid out $3.7 billion in ordinary death benefits. Then, in the year 2020, it went up to $4 billion. And then, in 2021, it went all the way up to $5.3 billion. Now, in terms of why these numbers are increasing so much, Lincoln National published a press release alongside these documents attributing their net operating loss to what they refer to as non-pandemic-related morbidity. Here's specifically what they wrote in their statement. Quote, Group Protection reported a loss from operations of $41 million in the quarter compared to a loss from operations of $26 million in the prior year quarter. This change was driven by non-pandemic-related morbidity, including unusual claims adjustments and less favorable returns within the company's alternative investment portfolio. The total loss ratio was 88% in the current quarter compared to 87% in the prior year quarter, with the increase driven by unfavorable non-pandemic-related morbidity and unusual claims adjustments. Now, I wanted to mention that the term morbidity is officially defined as, quote, the condition of suffering from a disease or medical condition. And so, taking that definition into consideration, what the statement appears to be saying is that this spike in the number of deaths has to do with non-COVID-related or non-pandemic-related diseases. And actually, in this regard, Lincoln National is not alone. That's because not only did Prudential Insurance, as well as Northwestern Mutual, likewise show a significant increase in the number of deaths, but also, according to another investigation that was likewise conducted by Crossroads Report, there's a life insurance company based out in Indiana called One America, which saw deaths spike by approximately 40% in the year 2021, specifically among people aged 18 to 64, otherwise known as the working age population. Now, One America is a giant $100 billion insurance provider that has likewise been around for a long time, for the past 145 years. However, in all that time, in all those 145 years, they have not seen a death rate as high as it is now. That's at least according to a statement that was made by their CEO. Here's specifically what he said, quote, we are seeing right now the highest death rates we have seen in the history of this business, not just at One America. The data is consistent across every player in that business. The increase in deaths represents huge, huge numbers, and it's not elderly people who are dying, but primarily working-age people, 18 to 64, who are the employees of companies that have group life insurance plans through One America. And what we saw just in the third quarter, we're seeing it continue into the fourth quarter, is that death rates are up 40% over what they were pre-pandemic. Just to give you an idea of how bad that is, a three sigma or a one in a 200 year catastrophe would be 10% increase over pre-pandemic. So 40% is just unheard of. And then just like the statement that was made by Lincoln National, the CEO of One America said that most of these death claims are classified as non-COVID deaths. Here's what he added, quote, what the data is showing to us is that the deaths that are being reported as COVID deaths greatly understate the actual death losses among working age people from the pandemic. It may not all be COVID on their death certificate, but deaths are up just huge, huge numbers. Now, naturally, the next logical question would be what exactly is leading to such a large uptick in non-COVID related deaths? Because initially, when I saw these deaths, well, I thought that these might be comorbidities, people dying from some underlying condition that was exacerbated by COVID. However, according to these statements, that does not appear to be the case because these insurance companies are making the specific claim that these deaths are non-COVID and non-pandemic related deaths. And so what exactly is going on? Well, it's not clear. And of course, I don't get into speculation. I only report to you the facts. And the facts are, according to these documents, that Lincoln National is seeing a 163% increase in death benefits, while One America is seeing a 40% increase in the number of deaths. Development of repurposed drugs and treatment strategies have paradoxically been aggressively blocked or inhibited by both NIH and FDA, apparently due to requirements in the federal emergency use authorization statute language, 
requiring lack of available alternatives as a predicate to granting emergency use authorization to a new product, including a vaccine product. In this case, with this outbreak, the CDC has played a more supportive role to NIH in contrast to prior, where NIH NIAID has focused on clinical research and early product development, and the CDC is focused on public health policy. We know, according to the New York Times article in President's Day, that the CDC has become politicized, particularly during the current administration, and has actively withheld information which has been deemed as posing risk for exacerbating, quote, vaccine hesitancy. During the current outbreak, the CDC has not fulfilled its traditional role as a neutral collector, arbiter, and reporter of public health data. CDC has, under FOIA, admitted to failing to perform obligated monitoring, analysis, and reporting of VAERS and related vaccine safety data. We heard testimony earlier about the uh, reliance of the state of uh, Texas uh, personnel on uh, the uh, evaluation of VAERS from the CDC and we now know that the CDC failed to perform their uh, required tasks relating to VAERS analysis assigned to them by Congress. As a consequence, neither patients, physicians, nor public health officials have been able to assess up-to-date information concerning vaccine effectiveness and safety. This has compromised the informed consent process. CDC has actively promoted and marketed vaccination with an unlicensed emergency use authorized product with over $1 billion in U.S. federal funding expended to both market the products and to censor those who have raised concerns regarding vaccine safety and effectiveness. This is not an opinion. It is well documented through Freedom of Information Act document disclosure. FDA, NIH, and CDC, together with World Health Organization, have cooperated to actively restrict, demean, and deprecate the use of multiple currently available licensed drugs for treatment of COVID-19 by licensed practicing physicians who are the ones who have the authority to establish local standard of care, not the CDC and not the NIAID, and have facilitated retaliation against physicians who do not follow the treatment guidelines established and promoted by the NIH. I was very glad to hear that is not happening with the hospital that was just uh, testifying. Historically, the NIH has neither mandate nor significant prior experience in developing and implementing universal treatment guidance and protocols, and has done so in a unilateral manner without seeking meaningful input from practicing physicians. 